Radio Influence. The future is now. This is Beyond the Badge on Radio Influence. A look inside the biggest and most controversial news stories you need to know now. One of the country's most relied upon law enforcement analysts, Vincent Hill. Hey, good evening and welcome to Beyond the Badge. Of course, I am your host, Vincent Hill. Today is Tuesday, March 13th, and I'm just back from New York City. If you remember last week, I said I was going up to New York City. I had some very uh, important things to do up there. So I got back this past Friday. Man, I got stuck in the, uh, well, I won't say stuck, but I, I, I became part of the snowstorm they had up there this past Wednesday. I actually had a production meeting uh, that I had to take a train to get off and walk in the snow to get to this meeting. And man, I tell you, I forgot how cold it can get up in New York City until I was up there this week. Uh, but to quickly recap, I flew in Tuesday. CBS flew me up there on Tuesday. I landed. They sent a car at the airport. I went directly to CBS Studios in New York, the CBS, not the local affiliate. I actually sat down and taped an, a portion of, of an interview uh, for 48 hours on the Tex MacGyver case, the attorney here in Atlanta who shot his wife in the back and she died. And he says it was an accident. Of course, that trial is about to start uh, tomorrow, I believe, the uh, opening statements to that trial. So I got a chance to tape 48 hours and I can actually check that off my bucket list because I've been watching that show for years and I've always said, hey, man, I would really love to be able to be on 48 hours. You know, it's my type of show because all they focus on are crimes and that's kind of what I do. I'm a crime buff. I'm a crime guy. And I got a chance to meet uh, Maureen Maher. She's one of the correspondents on 48 Hours. And I've kind of been secretly crushing on her for the last 10 years. So she actually did the interview with me. She's a really great, uh, really, really down to earth individual. And I appreciate her for that. So that was Tuesday. Wednesday, I had the big production meeting. Uh, got stuck in the snow or walked in the snow and you should have seen me walking down the street in my dress shoes trying to make sure I don't fall in all the slush. You know, it was quite entertaining. And then Thursday I went back to CBS because the one of the producers for 48 hours is actually in, interested in something I've been following for years. Pretty big case here in Atlanta. It's 38 years old. But she wanted to talk about that and she wanted to be able to get her boss and her boss's boss to actually green light her doing a show or a series of shows on this big case. So she asked me to come up there and pitch it. And I told her, listen, I can pitch it in a way that no one has ever told this story. And the story has been told countless times throughout history in the last 38 years. I said, I assure you, I can pitch this and tell it in a way it's never been told and in a way that makes sense. And I said, I think they will buy it. And sure enough, I was at CBS at the head of a conference table pitching this idea, this show idea. And the head of planning greenlit it. Then we went to their boss's office. And she's a pretty big wig at 
CBS and she's been there for years and she actually loved the idea. She loved the concept. She loved the way I pitched it and we got the green light. So big things coming with that. Uh, I don't know yet if it's going to be a two hour, 48 hours special or since CBS owns Showtime, if we're going to do a long form, what's known as a long form, a longer series on Showtime. Uh, either way, it, it really doesn't matter to me. I'm just thrilled, elated, humbled that I was able to go up to CBS where these people do this every day, where ideas get pitched to them every day and they get tossed by the wayside. I'm just very humbled that this little kid from Columbia, South Carolina with buck teeth, you know, 20 or 30 years ago was able to pitch this story and they bought it. So I'm very humbled. And that was Thursday. And then Friday, I finally flew back here to Atlanta uh, Friday evening. And trust me, by the time I got home about nine o'clock, I think I remember looking at my watch at 915. And then I remember the very next morning. That's how tired I was. And, you know, typically when you get tired, your body shuts down. Like, I'm kind of tired right now. We just lost an entire hour of sleep this past weekend. And I kind of need coffee as we speak. And typically when I get coffee, I usually go to a place that sells it, like a coffee shop or a quick trip gas station. I really love going to quick trip. Because I can make the coffee exactly how I like it. Sometimes I go to Dunkin' Donuts and they fill the coffee up to the very top and I have to pour some out so I can put my sugar and cream in it. Or sometimes, you know, I'll make a cup of coffee at home if I'm just trying to get through and I need that little boost because I'm always on the go. But typically I go to a coffee shop. And speaking of coffee shops, there's this one shop out in Oakland, California, and you may have heard of it that has said they have a unwritten policy, an unwritten policy that says they do not serve police. And it all started about a month ago when this Oakland police sergeant went in to get coffee because that's what police do. And quite frankly, that's what every American citizen does for the most part. They love coffee, you know, to get them through their day or for whatever reason. So, the sergeant goes into this coffee shop, and I'll tell you the name here in a second. And they tell him, hey, we don't serve police here. And they ask him to leave. So the coffee shop, again, in Oakland, California, which, by the way, is where the company that I actually work for is headquartered. And sometimes, occasionally, I have to go to Oakland, California. Well, I can tell you where I won't be getting my coffee uh, at this coffee shop called Hasta Marita Coffee Shop. I assume I'm saying that right. My Espanol is not the best, but I assume I'm saying that right. But you can look it up. So they say they have this policy uh, that asks police to leave and not be served or enter the building for the physical and emotional safety of their customers and its employees. Yes, let me say this again. The coffee shop... Hasta Marita Coffee Shop says they don't want police there because the physical and emotional safety of their customers and their employees. So when I see that, 
When I think of physical and emotional safety, I assume that they're saying that police are just going to run in there, shoot up the place, kill people, and then leave after they get their latte. I mean, that's how I read it, because what else could it mean? Oh, I know what it means. It's it's that false narrative that we hear, especially out in California, and we see what's going on in the news with California and the Department of Justice and which side, what side, you know, the state of California is in versus what side of the law that the Department of Justice is in. We see it, you know, California is a very liberal state. So I assume that they say in this policy when they're discussing physical and emotional safety, it's based on that narrative that police are just these untrained thugs that just go around and assault people. They go around and kill people and they get off scot-free. So now they're saying they're fearful of their safety, their physical safety and emotional safety because police hang out there. Well, okay, let's break this down just a little bit. So there's no police there. And now Joe Bob, Billy Bob, Pookie, Lil Mo, all of these criminals now know that, oh, you guys don't allow cops there. You know, because when I was in patrol, there were certain fast food restaurants around the city and certain restaurants, and especially a McDonald's on Harding Place that, you know, would get robbed from time to time that they eventually said, hey, I know what we can do. Why don't we have a table specifically for police? And on that table, it said police only. So what did that do? That alerted Joe Bob, Billy Bob, Pookie, Little Mo, that, uh-oh, the police may frequent here. So this may be an establishment we no longer want to rob. But the little coffee shop here in Oakland has now told Billy Bob, Joe Bob, Pookie, and Little Mo that, hey, no police will be here, so please come in and rob us. Please come in and shoot someone. Please come in after hours and commit a burglary. Because don't you worry, the police will not be here to protect us. Oh yeah, that's right. That's how that works, Hasta Marita Coffee Shop. Let's just say, for argument's sake because you are in the city of Oakland, where there is a pretty high crime rate, let's just say for argument's sake, while you're there working, someone comes in and sticks up the place. What are you going to do? Because part of your policy on your, your, your Instagram says, talk to your neighbors, don't talk to the police. Talk to your neighbors. Not the police. That's what it says on their Instagram. This coffee shop's Instagram. So let's say, boom, Joe Bob and Pookie and Little Mo, all three come in at the same time and they hold up the place. So does that mean you're going to call your neighbors to say, hey man, Little Pookie, Joe Bob and Little Mo came in here and they robbed the place. Man, now what do we do? Oh, and by the way, they shot someone in the process. Now, what do we do? 
your neighbor's going to say, hey, why are you calling me? You should be calling Oakland's finest, the Oakland Police Department. What are you going to say? Well, we can't because we don't allow police in here for our physical and emotional safety. Although Billy Bob, Pookie, and Little Mo just affected our emotional and our physical safety when they armed robbed the place and shot Mr. Johnson while he was drinking his coffee. We cannot call the police because our customers and our employees are in fear of their emotional and physical safety that they would have to deal with if the police were here. Let's go one even further. Let's switch this around and let's make it really, 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 really relevant. And let's stir some stuff up. Let's just say me. No, 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 scratch that. Because A, I typically stick with what I know, so I never go to Hasta Marita coffee shop. I'd go to Starbucks or, you know, Exxon or Quick Trip. So let's just say someone by the name of Trayvon. Johnson. Hypothetical. Like OJ said, hypothetical. Let's just say Trayvon Johnson, who is a black man, went into this coffee shop. And George at the register said, "Mm, Trayvon, we can't serve you because we do not allow black people in here because we fear for our physical and emotional safety. And don't talk to black people. Talk to your neighbors. Could you imagine? Could you imagine the uproar from the entire left side of things, if you know what I mean? Could you imagine if there was a coffee shop who says, we don't serve black people? Could you imagine the protest, the riots, the vandalism? Could you imagine all of that stuff? CNN would be there for days. Could you imagine all of that stuff if George at the register said, Trayvon Johnson, we cannot serve you because you are black and we fear for our safety. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I can imagine it, but I want you to imagine it. Because what that is called, and, you know, we went through this whole thing about the civil rights movement and, you know, you can't discriminate based on age, race, religion, color, all that good stuff, right? Could you imagine the lawsuits, the civil rights lawsuits, if Trayvon Johnson was told this? Because it's discrimination. So is it therefore not discrimination that you tell a police officer who was sworn to protect and serve you who would show up when Billy Bob, Pookie, and Little Mo robbed the store and shot someone, but you tell this police officer that we can't serve you because we fear for our safety. Well, what would you do if that police officer or the entire Oakland Police Department decided to sue this little coffee shop, and they would be justified in doing so because you can't, by law, discriminate 
against someone based on your personal feelings towards that individual. You can't do it. So it was personal feelings that said, we don't serve police officers. So therefore, that was discrimination. So therefore, if this police sergeant, or again, the Oakland Police Department, or any police officer, for that matter, decided to sue this coffee shop, they would win. Because if it was me, I probably would file a civil rights lawsuit against this coffee shop because they impeded my civil rights of buying a simple cup of coffee. But again, next time I'm in Oakland and I I love coffee and I love to get recommendations for coffee. I hope that no one recommends this Hasta Morita coffee shop because I assure you they won't get one dollar. They won't even get one penny out of Vincent Hill, let alone one dollar, because what they did sends a very wrong and bad message. Because instead of doing all of this, they should be trying to mend the gap between police and community. But it's funny how everyone seems to say it's always the police that have destroyed the gap between police and community. Well, you got this community, i.e. this coffee shop, saying they don't serve police. Isn't that dividing? Isn't that divisiveness? And again, if it was Trayvon Johnson who went to that coffee shop and wanted to buy coffee and was told he couldn't, the repercussions on that coffee shop They may as well just take a a freaking bomb and blow it up because that's what would happen if the roles were reversed and it was someone named Trayvon Johnson and they were black. That business would shut down because of the protest and the riots and everything else that would go along with it. All right. I want to switch gears and take it out to uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And if you don't know, I graduated high school in Milwaukee, Wisconsin and a long time ago, just put it that way. And uh, I was part of this program called the Police Cadet Program, which basically anyone that was not uh, 21 years old from the age of 18 to 20, I guess you could say, that was interested in being a police officer, you could sign up for this police aid program. Uh, you would wear the uniform, you would do sort of like admin work and kind of just learn the job of policing. Uh, And I came across this article uh, where the city is actually um, facing some police and fire cuts, the city of Milwaukee, based on a 2018 budget. And it's saying that the city of Milwaukee could lose up to 33 police officers and 75 firefighters. And knowing that city the way I do, you know, even back in 19... (laughs) When I graduated, um, knowing the city the way I do, especially now, that crime rate in Milwaukee is almost parallel to its sister city of Chicago. It's very high crime rate, and the city needs all of the officers it can get, and it needs all of the firefighters it can get because fires happen. Of course, firefighters are typically the first responders to situations 
where SWAT is called out or something like that, firefighters stage in the area to make sure if there are injuries that they are treated. So to lose 33 police officers and possibly 75 firefighters is a huge hit to the city of Milwaukee. Uh, But unfortunately, this epidemic is not just limited to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. There are a lot of police departments across this country who are having budget cuts, which could lead to or will lead to uh, some elimination of positions uh, on the police departments. And, you know, I even went through one in Nashville some years ago where budget cuts made certain people resign. That's typically how they like to try to do it. The people that are close to retirement and things of that nature, but it doesn't always work out that way. But anytime that the city cannot agree on a budget or they have to do budget cuts, which affect first responders, fire and police, it's not a good outcome for the city. There are departments across this country struggling for recruitment. I mean, there's one department out in Arizona who says their 800 officers uh, capacity is what they have right now, 800 officers, which is about 400 uh, too too little for what they need to patrol the entire city. Uh, If you look at a city city like Dallas, they're struggling uh, to recruit. 24 officers have left in the last few months, but they've only recruited two new officers. So there's this huge epidemic going on around the country with police departments regarding budgets and regarding recruiting. But the one I'm really worried about is the budget, because anytime, again, you start cutting money, that means someone has to lose their job. And that means that city is affected because of it. And speaking of budgets, I know that technology is a big part of any police department's budget and police departments want their officers to have the latest and greatest in car equipment. And I think my friends at Rugged Depot can actually help. Do you desperately need to update your in-car laptops? If you're having trouble fitting new IT equipment into your 2018 budget, then call Rugged Depot at 833-RUGGED-3. Rugged Depot will buy back your used laptops and tablets so you can put the money towards new equipment. Simply contact them for an appraisal by going to RuggedDepot.com and typing badge in the chat box or give them a call at 833-RUGGED-3 and tell them Beyond the Badge sent you. My friends at Rugged Depot know how to work with departments of any size to get the most for their money. They aren't your typical big box resellers and box pushers. They have a team of knowledgeable and experienced reps who will work with you to get you exactly what you need. Again, RuggedDepot.com or give them a call at 833-RUGGED3 and tell them Beyond the Badge sent you. You know, when I was on the street, you know, a lot of policing is very, very serious, but occasionally you come across just some very, very, let's just say, not smart individuals. And Lord knows I've come across a few in my lifetime. And, you know, someone has told me I should write a book about the comedic aspect of policing because I've seen it all from 
a lady calling in a domestic dispute. And when I show up, she answers the door butt naked and asks me if I think she's fat because her husband said she was fat. And that was the basis of the domestic dispute. So keeping a straight face and turning my back, I had to tell her, you know, go put some clothes on. Or the time we had a 911 hangup call at a hotel and I approached the 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 hotel room and I could see this leg on a table. You know how the tiny hotels have the table right by the window and the legs not moving and we're beating on the door and beating on the door and police, police. And we finally get a key and we make entry because we think that there's possibly a dead body in there and the guy is there masturbating. And the guy did not stop masturbating when we made entry. You know, it was like we were interrupting, and I guess we were interrupting his um, festivities, so to speak. So there's a lot of funny stories uh, in policing, and some, you know, people do some stupid, stupid stuff. And I haven't done this on the show in a while, but I want to highlight this week's dumbest criminal. And, uh, You know, it took place in Hartford, Connecticut, where there was a guy who was uh, facing stolen vehicle charges. He was going to court for stealing a vehicle, uh, 25-year-old Jonathan Rivera. Uh, So when he shows up to court, he parks a vehicle. The parking authority agents were scanning license plates outside of the courthouse. And one showed up as being reported stolen. So, of course, what do police do? Like I used to do when I would see a stolen vehicle that was unoccupied, I would sit by it and wait for the individual that got in it and drove it off because chances are that's the person that stole the car. So police, of course, they sat on this stolen car. And when he got in the car and tried to drive away, police turned on their blue lights and siren uh, and he was arrested again for a stolen vehicle. So I don't know what this guy's fascination is with stolen cars. Maybe, you know, he doesn't have enough money in the bank to buy a car, but I'm sure in Hartford, Connecticut, there's buses. I think there may be a train or two. You know, there's this thing called Uber. There's this thing called Lyft. I don't know why you would A, steal a car, but B, be going to court for the previous stolen car and then show up to court where there are tons of police at the courthouse because they have to be there too to testify in trials and all of that good stuff. But you show up to court in a stolen car and you don't think anyone's going to realize it. So Jonathan Rivera of Hartford, Connecticut gets the beyond the badge dumb criminal of the week. And speaking of stolen cars and and funny stories, I got to share this story. And let me preface this by saying no offense to anyone that may be obese. Uh, That that has nothing to do with it. But um, back in my day when I was policing, not to say that I'm out of shape now, but I was probably in five times better shape than like now it takes me 10 minutes and 30 seconds to run a mile versus back then I could do it in about seven. So one night, late one night, East Nashville, out on Clarksville Highway, I'm out patrolling, and I see this car. They see me, they turn down the street. So typically, when people do that, one, two in the morning, 
it kind of sends your police senses up. So I black out, I turn around, and I knew which way they would have to come back out. So they come out, I run the plate, comes back to a different vehicle. Boom, there's my probable cause to do a traffic stop. So I turn on my blue lights, and the car slows down for a second, and then punches it. So, of course, hit my siren, I say I'm in pursuit, and about 30 seconds into it, at about 60, 70 miles an hour, the passenger bails out of the car, i.e. he jumps out of the car, and he tumbles. So I can see him in my rearview mirror as he gets up, and he's just limping off like he had just broken both of his legs. But in policing, you go after the car. You always go after the car, and when you're by yourself, you don't have someone to stop to go get this other guy. So anyway, the pursuit continues, and he turns into this housing project off of Clarksville Highway. And I'm thinking, okay, well, he's about to bail. He must live here. This is it. This is where the pursuit's going to terminate. So he goes around this cul-de-sac maybe about 10 times at like 10 miles an hour. And I'm just waiting like, okay, this guy's going to bail. He has to be getting ready to bail. You know, I don't know what's taking him so long, but he's about to bail. And I'm, you know, on the radio, he's about to bail, yada, yada, yada. So he gets out and I'm like, all right, the foot chase is on. Here we go. He gets out and he turns around and he looks at me and I look at him. Now, again, back then, I mean, a mile I can run in seven minutes. Easy. I lost one foot pursuit, and that was only because there were two pit bulls in the backyard. And I was like, you can have it, buddy. Um, So the guy gets out. When he looks at me, I look at him, and he is, like, overly obese. He had to be well into the four or 500-pound mark, literally. And I I think to myself, surely, surely this guy is not going to run. So he looks at me, he turns around, and he takes off running. And for like 20 or 30 seconds, it wasn't like registering in my brain that this guy was running from me. So I look at him as he's running, and I said, dude, are you really going to make me run after you? So as I take like two or three brisk steps because it really wasn't a run i take two or three brisk steps and all of a sudden i hear this sigh (gasps) and he just stops so i catch him cuff him i say dude were you really gonna try to run from me (sighs) man i had to try i knew you'd catch me but i had to try i got a gun in the car I'm a felon. I don't want to go back to prison for 10 years. I said, well, dude, I give you an A for effort because you tried, but you weren't going to get away. But I th- I think the best part of the story is he's in the backseat of the car. You know, I've already searched his car. I do find the gun. He is a convicted felon. He knows he's probably going to prison for 10 years because he had just violated his probation not too long before that on something else and now there's this gun but he and his girlfriend had just had a little girl and uh he was worried that he wouldn't be able to talk to her once he got to jail so the best part of this story you know again a big part of policing is the human aspect of it i actually let him call his girlfriend 
uh, from my cell phone. And he was just so grateful that he got a chance to do that. And, you know, it just goes to show that just because I have a job to do, which is arrest bad guys, that all police officers aren't buttholes. And we are human. We understand the value of family. And I wanted this guy to be able to call his girlfriend and talk to her before he went down to jail. Because, yeah, he's right. It probably would have been quite a while before he would have been able to call her and tell her what happened. But, yeah, I I don't think I will ever, ever forget when he got out of the car and looked at me and I said, surely he's not going to run. And again, it's not a knock on his weight or anything, but it's like, okay, I'm maybe 200 pounds solid. I run every day. I'm like, surely this guy is not going to run. And uh, when he did it, it, I don't know why it took my brain 30 seconds to say, wait a minute. He's, he, yeah, he's actually running, but okay, let's go catch him. Uh, but you know, those are the stories I'll never forget. You know, the lady coming to the door, butt naked, uh, the guy masturbating in the bathroom, uh, the guy trying to outrun me, you know, those are the stories I'll never forget. There are a lot of stories that I have. There's a lot of memories that I have that I wish I could forget, but I don't want to forget the bad just as much as I don't want to forget the good because it made me the officer and it made me the person I am today. But I got to tell you, one of the scariest parts of the job uh, for me, even though I got in quite a few of them back in my day, was a vehicle pursuit. Uh, It's the most dangerous uh, situation because a lot of times, you know, there's so many moving parts to a pursuit. You, You have the tunnel vision on the vehicle you're chasing. You know, there's still oncoming traffic. There's a whole bunch of things going on. During the vehicle pursuit, a lot of officers have been hurt. A lot of officers have been killed uh, due to a vehicle pursuit, which brings me to my 10-7 segment for tonight. I want to spotlight Deputy Sheriff David LaShawn Manning, uh, Edgecumbe County Sheriff's Office, North Carolina. His end of watch was this past Sunday, March 11, 2018. Deputy Sheriff David Manning was killed in a vehicle crash as he pursued a car on Highway 111, three miles south of Tabora at approximately 6.15 p.m. His patrol car collided with a truck traveling the opposite direction. The vehicle he was pursuing crashed in a roadside ditch a short distance away. The driver fled on foot but was later apprehended. The occupants of the truck, a man and his wife, sustained sustained serious but non-life-threatening injuries. Deputy Manning had served with the Edgecumbe County Sheriff's Office for only four months, and he was only 24 years old. And in my mind, uh, he was a kid. He's only 24 he very well could literally be my son because my daughter is 22 years old. Uh, again, he a kid who was out chasing a bad guy in one of the most dangerous situations police officers find themselves in. It's not only dangerous for police, it's dangerous for the people they're chasing. It's dangerous 
for the public, but it's one of those necessary evils of policing. Uh, so Godspeed to Deputy Sheriff David Lee, Sean Manning. Uh, this write-up on the officer down memorial page does not say whether he left behind a family, but I assume he had a mother and a father and maybe some siblings. Again, he was 24 years old, so I'm sure there's someone that he left behind. Uh, so Godspeed to him. My prayers to his family. I want to thank you for listening to me tonight, and I will see you next week right here, same time, same place, RadioInfluence.com. Good night. To continue the conversation, get updates on the show, and to find out when you can see him on television, follow Vincent on Twitter, at Vincent Hill TV. That's at Vincent Hill TV. This has been Beyond the Badge on Radio Influence. This is a Landry Football with Chris Landry. Quick Fix on Radio Influence. If you draft well, you develop well, you have continuity, then the only thing you're doing in free agency is trying to augment that at the right spot. We're going to find a bargain. We're going to find this end piece for our you know kitchen, and this is what we're going to do. We're not going to break the bank. We're not going to be foolish. We want a certain type of guy to fit a certain type of role. We like them uh, coming out in the draft. We like what we know about him. We think he's a good fit here. Let's go ahead and make that move. You start stepping out and getting into a price war, all of a sudden, boom, it's over. You're chasing the market, and you're now completely disrespected the balance of your salary within your roster, and it's going to hurt you. Listen, free agency is like a garage sale. You're chasing what other people want to put out the curb. Chris Landry brings you Landry Football every week on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and, of course, RadioInfluence.com.